Hi, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited you are here, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks. All right, let's pause for what we're what we call re um, rebound, which is taking a break from our daily activities and distractions to make sure and identify where we're at spiritually with God. At some point in James, here's a little side extra stuff already. Yeah, we're not even a sentence in. At some point in, in the book of James, we'll get to the four imperatives of Christian living. It incorporates part of this process. It's actually kind of amazing, and it, it's it's very neat to see. I, I won't spoil it now, partly because I'll mess it up, and partly because we don't need to know it yet. But um, understanding where you are spiritually and being able to do that is an imperative of Christian living. Um, so before we get into tonight's study, uh, let's take 30 seconds or so for rebound if necessary. And we'll continue on. So I'll give you 30 seconds or so, and then I will open in prayer for us corporately. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, through whom we are able to come back again to your throne and submit ourselves once more to you, having confessed the sin that has infiltrated our walk with you and our relationship with you. Father, help us to depend upon you, to have an attitude of belief that is, stems from your word and from your character. And as we look at who you are tonight, Father, may you reveal yourself to us and through this study and through the different interactions that we've, we're going to face tonight and come across. And we glorify you and magnify your attributes to those around us. That they may see who you are and that they may in turn come to glorify you as well. Thank you for this study. Teach us with your Holy Spirit and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Da -da -da -da. Side study number three. As best I can tell, this is number three. I thought we were at like six or seven, but apparently this is officially number three. Last week, we dealt with James 1.17 and we finished part three of James 1.17. So we talked about how James gave the mechanics about the end game of uh, Lucifer and company, in, or Satan and company, in their attempt to deceive believers, and not just believers, but all humans, from truth through sin. And that is accomplished through the lust pattern and bait and a trap. And when those two, uh, and when those two and the believer or the individual combine, uh, sin is accomplished, which is unrighteousness, uh, nonconformity to God's plan. And so to, to combat that, and defeat that, James was given the diaspora mechanics of how to do that. Deception occurs, how to not, not be deceived. Identify where the source of the bait is. If there's a bait in the trap, or if there's something that you desire, what's the source? Is it from God? Is it from something else? If it's not from God, then you don't want it because it's not a good or perfect gift, uh, which James identified good being something that is naturally inherently valuable and complete, or a perfect gift as being that which is complete according to its specifications, uh, which means that when God gives something, it's going to be at the right time. That, that, that includes that. Is that completeness is when it's supposed to be released. Um, so keep that in mind too. We often face decisions about what are we supposed to do? What, what do you want us to do? And we've got the moral, the ethical, and then the directional in that kind of concept. But oftentimes when we're seeking something from God, we need to remember that he provides that for us at the right time. And that's part of him giving us a good and complete gift. Um, just one of those things that we need to remember. So it seems fitting at the current juncture in, in our study of James's epistle to the diaspora that we take a look at the character of God. Doing so creates the proper foundation from which we can build upon as James transfers out of trials and testation to plan a prescription of God to the plan of prescription of God regarding what true spirituality exists being in his reality. Now, that's a little bit of a spoiler itself because I'm identifying that we are about to transition From this doctrine and teaching on the mechanics and processes and protocols of the, the doctrine of trials and, and testation um, into a new arena. And that is just kind of naturally progressing. So James has pretty much wrapped that up with verse 17. He's kind of completed that. Verse 17 and 18 are sort of logically connected, but they're not equi 
they're not related to each other. It's a now shift to a new, new topic and new progression towards identifying what true spirituality is, which is our theological theme in the book of James. Being the sole, infinite, and right, in the sense of righteous being that he is, God alone defines what reality is. This is a fact that's largely ignored and rebelled from in today's secular and even evangelical societies. Um, sadly so, this is the state of affairs. We've, we've lost the secular to this concept, and we are losing rapidly, if not have lost, the evangelical society to this concept as well. That God alone defines what and what is reality. Scripture contains thousands of promises made by God and given to different individuals. Believers alone have over 7,000 promises proffered and presented by God. According to Webster, promises are declarations that one will do or refrain from doing something specified. A promise can be to one party, from one party, meaning that you can make a promise to yourself to do or not do something, or it can be from one party to another party or one party to a multiple group of parties. Um, could be a group of many people or a group of individual promises made to individuals that may be different. Uh, but a promise is a declaration that one will do or refrain from doing something specified. Given the nature of a promised, of a promise, trust between the promisee and the promiser is essential. Those words are made up. I have added them to my PowerPoint dictionary. So you do not need to worry about little squiggly lines showing up anymore. Okay. The promisee and the promiser. Just for the sake of clarity, in case it's not clear yet, the promisee is the one receiving the promise. The promiser is the one promising the promise. It, those should totally be words in our English language. In fact, I would imagine that we could add them. They're real words that they will underline because they're probably not right. So. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're making these up. Webster didn't have it. But it's okay. They're necessary to identify the different parties involved. And rather than use 15 words to identify who's doing what and that kind of process, we'll just use one word, promisee, promiser. Mostly we'll talk about the promiser over the promisee. So given the nature of a promise, that it's a declaration that one will do or not do something specified, now, trust is a big deal between the promiser and the promisee. The promise of a liar lacks hope. A liar's character deems the fulfillment of the promise to be questionable. Therefore, the character of the promiser must be able to accomplish a few necessities. The seven dependencies of promise fulfillment. This is something that I have kind of walked into. Um, didn't have any intention of coming out with this. It just kind of came out. But as we look at promises and the things which hinder promise fulfillment, um, these are seven things which fulfillment of a promise depend upon. Number one, the character of the promiser, the attributes that make that individual up. And by attributes, we're referring more to the heart concept rather than to the body, soul, spirit concept. Not the schema or the schematics of him, but the character, the heart of the man. Number two, the resources of the promiser, that which he has available to him. I'm just going to read the rest of the list because we actually have slides for each one of these. Um, so as we get going here, if you're writing notes down, don't worry about getting all these right now. We'll, we'll be going through them in the next few slides here. Um, so the seven dependencies of promise fulfillment, starting from number one again, are the character of the promiser, the resources of the promiser, the abilities of the promiser, the volition or free will of the promiser, the mutability of the promiser, the subjection of the promiser, and the finitude or finitude or finitude of the promiser. <coughs> I prefer finitude. Mutability? mutability is an ability to change. <coughs> and it's used... What's that? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same derivative. <coughs> so these are the seven categories of dependencies that I was able to establish for promise fulfillment to take place. Uh, there are other things that that may join into this as a dependency of its own category, but everything else I could think of fit into one of these categories. 
Um, so I, I'd be pretty close, probably like 85% saying this is a pretty thorough, exhaustive list. Um, I don't know everything, though, so you never know. Um, <clears throat> there was something significant with the number seven there, and there's also some more significance that can probably be deemed later on in the study that I've already come across, but um, we'll try not to spoil that just yet. All right, let's take a look at these seven, de seven dependencies that promises are dependent upon in order to be fulfilled. Number one, the character of the promiser. A is comprised of attributes which dictate behavior. And this, again, is a reference, line item B, to the cardia of the individual. The character of an individual is dependent upon the heart. Character, which is untrustworthy, doesn't necessitate a failed fulfillment of a promise. However, the character of the promiser dictates behavior. Therefore, the fulfillment of the promise or potential Therefore, it dictates also the fulfillment of the promise or potential lack thereof. In other words, just because a character is not trustworthy doesn't mean that they will not fulfill their promise. It just means it's a little more vulnerable to not being fulfilled. In fact, it would be more skeptical toward being fulfilled. <clears throat> Number two. The resources of the promiser. The promiser must possess adequate resources to fulfill the promise. Here's an example. If I were to tell you, Ginnamites, I will give you $1 million if you bring a friend to Ginnamai, would you expect to receive a $1 million? I got two going no, one doing nothing, and one going yes with a big smile on her face. All right? <laughs> Hopefully, the by the, based upon my character, yes. But based upon my resources, it's not going to happen. If if every one of you brought a friend, that'd be $4 million that I would be out. Well, three, because if one of you brought a friend, it'd be $1 million I'd be out, which I don't have. So here's the problem with that, is that if I don't have the million dollars, if I don't have $1 million at all, then I can't obviously give anyone a million dollars, know, let alone four for each Ginnamite member. Either way, I wouldn't have the resources. Yeah. She just called you a junior hire. No. Sometimes I give them $5 off each youth event if they bring a friend, but it's only for special things. Yeah, which inevitably leads to, well, what if I bring six friends? Give you five dollars off for each of them. Well, if the event's only fifteen dollars, and that's thirty dollars. Well, yeah, we digress. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get back to our seven dependencies. Number three, the third dependency is the ability or the abilities of the promiser. The promiser may have the resources and the character to fulfill the promise, but he may lack the ability to, to do so. Intellect and knowledge, some of the abilities here that may be lacked. Um, a transition of physical location. You may have the resources and the character to fulfill a promise, but if you move across the country, that may put a damper on your ability to do that. Um, so we're dealing with the abilities, including um, being like too physically weak or too physically small to accomplish something. Uh, I, I'd like to lift this house off if it's moorings and take it somewhere, put it more in the country, but I'm physically incapable of doing that. Um, I have the resources with my hands, and I've got the character to work hard, I guess. That's a stretch, but we'll take it. Uh, but I do not have the physical strength to accomplish it. So it's one of the dependencies of our seven is the abilities of the promiser to accomplish the promise that is made. The fourth is the volition of the promiser. One of the major wild cards of humanity, and given because we are creating God's image, is his ability to choose. Promises are dependent upon the promiser's choice to both make and fulfill the promise. In other words, you could promise it, have the character, have the abilities, have the resources, and then just say, yeah, nope. It would be a change in character, but that's something that we'll deal with when we get the mutability. Because volition is subject to the cardia, its implementation is always in agreement with the individual's character, yet not necessarily the individual's conscience. This comes back down to knowing something is right doesn't mean you believe it's right. What you believe are your actions. And what you believe is what you choose to put into dependencies. 
So what you choose to depend upon, this creates a belief. What you choose to know or what you do know as right or wrong morally and ethically is one of the filtration systems that we have for that. So when you use your volition, it's always in relationship to, and you produce an action from that, it's always in relationship to your heart. Actions are a result of beliefs, dependencies that you've placed by your choice, by your free will, upon different data systems. So because volition is subject to the cardia or the heart of man, its impl implementation is always in agreement with the individual's character, yet not necessarily the individual's conscience, which deals with the filtration of moral and uh, ethical good and bad. Number five, the mutability of the promiser. Mutability refers to the promiser's ability to change in character, personality, or shape. Fulfillment of a promise becomes dependent upon the mutability and when I say depend upon the mutability, I'm, I'm more or less referring to whether the, the promiser is mutable or not. Um, not the degree of his mutability or anything like that, but whether he has the ability to change or not. Uh, humans are mutable. God is not. Fulfillment of a promise becomes dependent upon the mutability and oftentimes volatility of the promiser. A promiser whose character, personality, or shape changes or shape changes creates a vulnerability towards the fulfillment of the promise. Let me add a who's in there just to smooth that out. Alright. So a promiser whose character, personality, or whose shape changes creates a vulnerability towards the fulfillment of the promise. Therefore, if a promiser is mutable, there's a vulnerability toward them fulfilling their promise. Number six, the subjection of the promiser. If the promiser is subject to the governance of another individual or object, then the promiser may be unable to fulfill the promise regardless of possessing the ability or resources. Being subject to a superior to whom he must obey or relate can render his ability to make and fulfill promises null and void. I have access to a bunch of books. Well, that's a bad one because I'm in charge of those. Think about work. When you're at work, your work brings in money and it has a bank account and hopefully has a savings account and some marketing accounts and some different stuff where they're trying to use that money. But you being an employee doesn't give you access or the right to distribute or dispense the funds unless you are the accounting executive or the financial officer or the CEO. So you may work for the business, represent the business, have that money available as a resource, but you don't have the right or the ability because you're subject to a higher power in your job to dispense it. That's what we're referring to here is the subjection of the promiser. Are they subject to someone or something else? Precisely. I am subject to the laws of the land, so I cannot steal a million dollars to give to you, to fulfill my promise, to give it to you if you bring a friend. The last of our seven dependencies is the finitude of the promiser. As well-meaning and able as the promiser may be at the time in which the promise is made, the promiser's state of finitude creates a vulnerability towards fulfillment of the promise. If the promiser is finite and thus subject to beginning and end, then he may end before he can begin fulfilling the promise. An infinite promiser is safely capable of fulfilling a promise. In other words, if you are a human, you are finite. You had a beginning. You will have an end. So you may die before you're able to fulfill the promise. These are pretty logical. I'm not sure that we think through them all the time, but I will never trust a human when they make a promise again. <laughs> Just kidding. You might die before you can fulfill that promise. Are you going to kill me? No. Dude, take your hamburger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on. Any individual declaring a promise to another must be able to adequately accomplish the fulfillment of the promise. As is pertinent to the doctrine of trial and testation being taught by James, the diaspora must understand the character of their promiser being God. Multiple promises and declarations are made concerning God's character, actions, and role with the believer facing trial and testation. This is why we're talking about this. It's because we're going to transition here in James 
from the doctrine of contestation to the understanding of what true spirituality is in a different light. Um, understand who God is is going to kind of be a springboard for us to go into verse 18, 19, and following. Um, in our study on trial and testation, we have several examples of declarations or promises about God or from God. James 1.5 identifies that God gives generously, and it's from hoplos, meaning unconditionally. Um, God gives also in James 1.5 without reproach. That's from onidizantas, meaning God will not cast your request back at you in disgust. These are promises or declarations about God and who He is and how He operates, which is all based upon His character. Number three, God promises the crown of life in two believers in James 1.12, specifically to those who persevere under, under trials, remain under them in, in faith. Um, it comes out as one of those precious stones that goes through fire and gets rewarded to the steward and then cast back to Jesus. Number four, James 1.13, God does not test by evil. And number five, God cannot be tested by evil. Also, James 1.13. From James 1.13, also, number six, God does not test anyone. Not with evil, not with good, but anyone. That's how it says it. Number seven, God is the source of good things in James 1.17. In James 1.17, also, God is the source of complete gifts, those things found to be in complete conformity to their plan for uh, production and development. And then number nine, God does not change. Also in verse 117, these are all things we've studied. Um, God does not change comes from uk and I paralage, which basically means there exists no, no change in state from one form to another in God. I put in parentheses there, think seasons in that change in state. Now, that's because paralege actually refers to that the, the orbital thing. We kind of talked about this. This is this is an aside. This is going back to last week. I, I kind of wanted to add this in there. Um, but in the orbital concept, we get this shift in seasons for the Earth. That's kind of included in this understanding of paralege, is that there's a change in form from one to another. Like we change from winter to spring to summer to fall. That's the type of change we're talking about here. So it's not so much a mutability as it is... Um, a change in recreate variability, right? Sure, Re reoccurring, uh, a recurring variability. Um, it it's the same same object with different light, I guess you no will. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily a flip flop as it is a just a change in how it's being seen. So that's part of that. Now mutability is a part of parallel gate too, but the astronomical concept of it is that it's shifting. Uh, through its orbit, and you see different uh, see different parts or different sides of it in different ways because of the orbit. Now God does not change; He doesn't have that process where He's not mutable. He doesn't. We don't see different things of Him as He goes around the sun. In essence, number ten from James one seventeen: God cannot be eclipsed. It's from tropes aposkiosma, which means there exists no eclipsing of God by any other. God cannot be hidden. God cannot be blocked by any other being or object. Without a proper understanding concerning the character of God, in many cases the promiser behind James's declarations, there lacks an understanding concerning the ability of God to fulfill or uphold his promises. We typically don't question whether God's going to fulfill a promise. However, we do often get surprised when he does. We'll deal with that later. Therefore, side study three will focus on God's ability to uphold his promises because of his character. And we have titled it, The Character of God, as a result. In doing so, we will summarize and, and identify these seven dependencies of promise fulfillment um, throughout this study. Uh, it will probably be all this week. That's its intention. So this should be one one summarized study of it. Um, it. It would take eternity to finish a study on an infinite God. Mm -hmm. Alright, many philosophical maxims, discussions, and debates have attempted to examine the character of God and failed. This is largely due to the nature of philosophy, given that it is human logic and ethos which governs philosophy. In other words, it's human viewpoint. 
As a result, philosophical contemplation of the character of God predominantly perceives, processes, and postulates abstract, subjective, and oftentimes ignorant postludes concerning the nature and character of God. How is that for a college slide? Uh, it's the counterpart to a prelude. It's the much lesser known counterpart to a prelude. A prelude precedes the lude, and then after the lude, the postlude. The lude's the middle part. The lude's the thing, whatever it is. Apparently. Apparently I have a thing for alliteration. Um, yeah. Philosophical, philosophical common contemplation predominantly perceives processes and postulates abstract, subjective, and oftentimes ignorant postludes concerning the nature and character of God. Yeah, there's a lot of alliteration in there. You want to process? Yeah, please. All right. In other words, if you're looking at things from a philosophical viewpoint, and you're contemplating them philosophically, which means you're thinking about them humanly, um, and under a, a phylos logic or wisdom that you can derive from humanity and the human world, um, then if you're putting that in application towards the character of God and thinking about him within that process, um, you'll perceive, evaluate, and process that information, uh, and then create some sort of hypothesis or interpretation of it um, that's abstract, meaning it's not concrete, it's subjective to different things, subjective, and oftentimes ignorant because largely it's human viewpoint on a divine viewpoint concept. You can't humanly analyze God, you have to divinely analyze a divine thing. So the result of that is that you make ignorant conclusions or products concerning the nature and character of God. Most theological discussions these days sadly are philosophical, as opposed to theological, which Theology is kind of the umbrella for philosophical and scriptural and allegorical and literal debates. Um, what I'm trying to get away from in, in our, our studies and in my studies is philosophical debates, allegorical debates, and stick literal, grammatical, historical. And that's Wiley's approach. Um, that was part of the reason that I was like, yeah, let's go to Wiley, because it's pretty much the only one that I found that I could agree with 99.8% of this stuff. Because of philosophy's characteristic failure, to consider divine viewpoint as supreme to human viewpoint, it remains inconclusive of objective understanding of the divine concepts of cosmos theos. In other words, philosophy and its characteristic failure to use divine viewpoint instead of human viewpoint will not be able to understand the divine concepts of God's world system. Um, it, it will always be inconclusive. We'll be, this is what logically makes sense, but we can never know which is what you see in a lot of evangelical churches these days. We can know what God has revealed. There are things that we will not know, to which philosophy is a great thing to implement. Insofar as this is the case, philosophy will not be the basis upon which this study develops an understanding regarding the character of God. We are not going to get coffee, as much as I love coffee, and sit around reading a book that repaints the Christian faith, or reading a book that identifies who God is to someone in the Southern culture, or whatever. Um, there are many books out there that have tried to use allegory and different cultures to represent God. Um, humans should never be representative of God outside of God's terms. He created us to represent His glory and to glorify Him. Um, but outside of a relationship with Him, we're not able to do that. I mean, so like, human viewpoint, we're not able to do that. Go ahead. An allegory like Narnia, without the God, yes. would be fine because He is representing the world. Okay, allegory doesn't necess necessarily mean incorrect theology or representation. Mm -hmm. Neither does philosophy. Philosophy, if it's under a divine viewpoint, will work. It, it has its place, and it has to be under the, in the right right arrangement. With Narnia and allegory, there, it's done a great job, and, and C.S. Lewis did a great job implementing Christian theological themes that he learned into his stories. So just because it's philosophical or allegorical doesn't mean you throw it out the window. What I'm saying is our study shouldn't be philosophical and allegorical in nature. It should be divine viewpoint. And philosophical or philosophy and allegory are human viewpoint concepts. Allegory basically is a parable. 
And Jesus spoke in parables and taught parables to those who could not understand the doctrines of God. And he told the, the disciples, that, or the apostles and the disciples, that it was given to them to understand the message of God, the mysteries of God, and then later to the church. But he said to, to the ones I'm speaking in parables, it hasn't been given to understand. They can't understand it. So I speak to them in parables, which is a way for them to understand the human viewpoint, a divine concept. <clears throat> which is why most of the time the parables went by the wayside. Also makes sense, too, in that transition, where the disciples, from human viewpoint to divine viewpoint, why they didn't understand a lot of it either. <clears throat> it sounds like it's a tool to teach divine viewpoint. It's just a transition to move people towards a greater under right. understanding. And so it, it's not, allegory isn't the end, it's the means. So as long as it's it's not the approach, it's the descent. It's the landing. In other words, it's, it's a tool, like you're saying, to implement, yes. and philosophy too, to implement to those who cannot understand divine concepts on a literal divine <laughs> standard to bring it into their arena so they can understand it. The only problem with philosophy and allegory in many, arena, in many ways is that unless the person has, has accepted Christ as their Savior, they're incapable of understanding it anyway. So where we get the concept of an allegory majorly is the, in the gospel message. That we know we've done something wrong or bad, which I hate that term bad for sin. It doesn't really equate. But that's how we term it is you know you've done a bad thing or something wrong. And then there, there's a punishment for that. And all these are human concepts. We know that. We're taught that growing up. You don't do your chores, you get spanked. You don't do your chores, you go to your room, whatever. Um, and then... That there's someone that's willing to take the punishment for you. All you have to do is let them or ask them to. So we see that largely there because it's focused on bringing people to a savior knowledge of, of truth. Uh, but then once they get to that point, if it remains allegory of philosophy, they remain at a milk concept where they're only getting things on a human viewpoint thing. They're supposed to be transformed to a divine viewpoint concept so they understand and can actually teach and feed themselves rather than being fed through allegory or philosophy. So they're tools to be used to accomplish a means, but they're not designed for us to operate from. If, you, if that's what, does that clarify what I'm really yeah. trying to get at? Okay. <clears throat> and that's what we're basically saying here when we say, nor should philosophy be the basis upon which theology is properly established. Philosophy should come after theology, not theology after philosophy. Philosophy is contrarily an entertaining pastime for discussion for non-revealed truths of cosmos theos. Things like how many angels could fit on the head of a pin? Or could God build a rock, make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Well, the answer to both of those is we don't really know. Except the other one, we know he can do anything and he can't, you know, so whatever. But that builds into a philosophical discussion on things that we haven't been alerted to yet in Scripture, that we haven't been revealed to. So we shouldn't take Scripture where it says, go and sin no more and say, this is philosophically saying yada, 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 yada. We shouldn't interpret it on our human viewpoint. We should look at it under the light of Scripture, literally, grammatically, and historically, in my opinion. And I think that's the only way you can look at Scripture realistically. Otherwise, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. And then develop our theology, develop from that our philosophy and the allegory from there to be able to teach to those who may not have the divine viewpoint yet at, that, at their point in maturity in their spiritual walk whether they have a spiritual walk or not. Philosophy is contrarily an entertaining pastime for discussion of non-revealed truths of cosmos theos. Why philosophize about, what God, about that which God has already revealed in Scripture? Thus, Scripture is to be the source from which divine viewpoint and doctrine is studied and established. Doctrine. Doctrine. I will indoctrinate you. <laughs> to this end... And our study of the character of God, uh, Ezekiel 128 serves a proper springboard. Ezekiel 128 says, As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. The prophet Ezekiel um, identifying the appearance of God's surrounding radiance as a rainbow in the clouds of the sky. <clears throat> he uses that phrase, the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, 
to describe in direct contrast the appearance of the manifestation of God. Scripture uses the word glory to refer to the character of God. Many of God's creative works reflect the likeness of God, but the rainbow is given by Scripture as a direct example of the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. Now, notice, notice the wording here. It's the, like, the manifestation of the likeness of God. This isn't saying that the rainbow is God or that this is who he is. What it's saying is this is the, the visible manifestation of the likeness or the image of God, the character of God. <clears throat> when we say that man was created to glorify God, basically that word glorify means to place a magnifying glass over something and reveal its attributes. That's all our job is to do, is hold the magnifying glass up and let those attributes be seen. Um, but word glory is the reference to the complete set. So if we only refer to God, God being love or God being righteous, we're missing some of them. There's more to it than that. And yet the rainbow once again appears in Scripture when God makes a covenant with the earth and its inhabitants that he would never destroy all flesh by water again. That term all flesh could lead us on an interesting rabbit trail. Um, and I probably won't get into it much, but it makes you wonder what about the fishes. Did the fishies, were the fish destroyed in the flood? Or not? But it's interesting that God makes the comment that all flesh was destroyed. And that he makes a covenant with, covenant with all flesh. Um, the other thing is that judgment was upon flesh, not upon animals. So the animals, obviously, those were on, that were on land had to be put in the ark. But what about the fish? Did Noah make aquariums under God's guidance and instruction? Probably not. Yeah, it's true. So this is where philosophy would come in. And we would say, let's figure this out. How many fish were on the ark? It doesn't say. Anyway, the passage that we're referencing, what's that? Yeah. He just, Noah just had a net, just like a glass cage on the back of the, the ark, and he towed them along. They could have been in front, maybe they were pulling God's original outboard motor. All right, the passage we're looking at surrounding the rainbow is Genesis 9, 13 to 17. 13 to 15 reads this way. And this is God speaking. He says, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud over the earth. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And he is speaking here to Noah predominantly, but you can identify the all-inclusive nature of the covenant that he is making. Verses 16 to 17 in Genesis 9, When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it, to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God has identified the rainbow as a sign of his character through this process. We'll look a little more at some of that. God used the rainbow as a visible representation to all living flesh that he would never again flood the earth completely with water. The rainbow is the visible representation of his character given to Noah and all flesh as proof that he could be trusted to fulfill his promise. In fact, God said himself that he would remember his promise when he looked upon the rainbow. Oh, so philosophically, God forgets things. Because if he has to remember it, he has to look at something to remember it, then he doesn't know it, obviously. That's an anthropomorphism. Don't worry about it. Between the Genesis account and Ezekiel's statement identifying the glory of God as being in the likeness of the rainbow, the understanding is created that God's character is apparent through the rainbow's display. It was the token that God gave to represent his character and visibly remind Noah and all, the, and all flesh of his promise to never destroy the earth by flood again. In Revelation, the rainbow appears again. Revelation 4.3 says, And he who is sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. <coughs> Revelation 10.1 I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with the cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. In each of these, the rainbow is representative of God's character. Notice that in Revelation 10.1, it's not God coming down. It's a representative of an angel, a messenger of him, and it's got a halo or this rainbow that's upon his head. 
what it's identifying is that God's character sent him. What's that? A rainbow halo. Yeah, it'd be super cool, huh? This is where unicorn philosophy came on. Yeah. And notice that it's not God who was a rainbow in Revelation four three. It says, and he was sitting, and he who was sitting was was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne. God's character, the visible manifestation of God's character, was around the throne. The visible manifestation of God's character was upon the head of the angel coming down out of heaven in Revelation 10.1. It's a sign of God's character. Now look at this. In studying the rainbow, it is apparent that there are seven colors to its naturally visible spectrum. Elementary classes identify the spectrum by the acronym Roy G. Biv, which we understand as representative of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Those are the seven colors which make up the visible rainbow. Um, there are always seven to a complete rainbow. As the rainbow was given by God to be a sign of his character, it would be apparent then through, this, through his rainbow that there, would be then seven, that there would then be seven attributes of God. Since the rainbow is made of seven different colors, yet it itself is one entity, God himself teaches through it that he is the same made up of seven different attributes, yet one entity. So the rainbow is the manifestation of his character. The colors are representative of each attribute of his character. It is important to remember that much like a rectangle cannot be a square, the rainbow is not God. It is God's chosen representative of the likeness of his character. Keywords there, number one, representation. Number two, likeness. It represents him it is, and is representing his likeness. Yeah, that reflection itself isn't the individual. Color historically has been used itself as representing the likeness of things as well. We call it color symbology. Feelings and attributes alike have been represented by color all throughout history, but enthusiastically so within the realms of the literary world. Literarily, color has represented moods, mindsets, actions, and char character traits of both fictional and historical characters. In such a way as well, the rainbow's colors are representative of the attributes of God, which manifest his character. The rainbow, again, was given by God as the visible representation of his character. It possesses seven colors, which comprise its own character. Each color is an attribute of the rainbow, which possesses and requires each of the seven colors in order to effectively be a complete rainbow. There are times when only a few of the rainbow's colors are visible, to which humanity prescribes the term partial rainbow or incomplete rainbow. And adequately so, for we cannot see the whole thing. In similar fashion, when only part of the character of God is known, studied, or seen by an individual, that individual did not witness the complete character of God. That is to say, God has seven attributes, which he reveals through the rainbow. Those seven attributes make up the complete character of God. If only two of the attributes are witnessed by an individual or in abstract view of the individual or are in abstract view of the individual, then he fails to see God's complete character, seeing only a partial view of God. That's setting us up for something later, so just hang on to that tidbit. This count of seven attributes is confirmed in Revelation 1, 4, 3, 1, and 4, 5, which refers to the attributes of God as pneumatone and pneumata, Pneumatone is in Revelation 1 4. Uh, pneumata is Revelation 3 1 and 4 5. All of which come from pneuma, which is the word typically referred to or rendered in English as spirit. Um, pneumatone and pneumata or pneumata are plural, and so it's spirits. They refer contextually to the spiritual attributes of God. That is the Spirit of God Himself, His character. We're not talking about here the Holy Spirit as a part of the Trinity of God. We're talking about God's Spirit. There's a difference. Just like humanity has a spirit if they're believers, and the Holy Spirit and human spirit are two different things. They work together. They're, the Holy Spirit and God are the same. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. But we're referring here to the spiritual attribute of God, of his, if you will, physicality or spirituality. Pneumatone and pneumata are from pneuma, which is a predominant word used to relate to the Holy Spirit or used to define or used to translate, it's the predominant word used to translate into English as the Holy Spirit. Yet in Revelation 1, 4, 3, 1, and 4, 5, the context dictates otherwise, along with the absence of hagios, which would be the term holy that's prescribed to Holy Spirit. You don't have to have hagios every time pneuma is used to refer to the Holy Spirit. Um, it just, 
the absence of it along with the context identifies that it's clearly not a reference to the Holy Spirit or to the Spirit in the sense of Holy Spirit. Being adequately documented and harmonized then, the rainbow is the visible manifestation of the spirits of God, that is, the very attributes which make up or comprise his character. There are then seven attributes of God from which many other ad adjectives, descriptors, and characteristics infinitely derive their source. That is to say, God has seven attributes which house all other potential descriptors of God. The first color of the rainbow is red. Actually, let me go back to my last statement. Uh, the statement that says that is to say God has seven attributes which house all other potential descriptors of God. We're going to give seven, ba seven basic ones, I guess is what we'll call them. They are the attributes of God. Every attribute fits into those. Every other characteristic fits into those groupings. Um, so where we would say that God is uh, infinite, that would fit into him being internal. Where we would say that God is immutable, that would fit into him being righteous. We're going to get through some of these things. But uh, any descriptor we have comes from these seven um, based upon what we can see. All right, let's commence then. The first color of the rainbow is red. Literarily, red has been used to symbolize love. Scripture declares, the one that does not love does not know God, for God is love in 1 John 4, 8. Red is symbolic of God being love. Furthermore, the Greek word uses agape, which refers to a self-sacrificial love, which manifests itself in being given, regardless of the response it receives from the recipient. This is your definition of how you are to love your neighbor and how you are, loved, are to love yourself, and how you are to love God, and your enemy, and every person on earth in this capacity. With a love that is given self-sacrificially, and we call it unconditionally because of that manifestation, it's given regardless of the response it receives. Now the response that it receives may be from the recipient, but it may also be from those around the recipient. An easy example of that would be loving a homeless person, some around you may not like that you're loving a homeless person. They may try and discourage you from doing so. But if God has called you to love themselves sacrificially, then it doesn't matter what other people think or what the recipient thinks. Your job is to love them. This is expressed through a mindset or an attitude of self-sacrificial love. Um, just as a side note here, literarily, red has been used to symbolize love. It also oftentimes symbolizes warfare because of the blood concept. But if you look at the history of agape, it includes this concept of dying. And greater love has no man than this, that he what? Lay down his life for his friend or for his brother. But this concept of love is linked to blood. And that's that self-sacrifice. The ultimate example of love is being willing to give that blood up. The second color of the rainbow is orange. Scripture declares, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. That's in Psalm 139, 8-10. Orange is symbolic of God being omnipresent. Omni is a prefix that means all, full, or complete. Complete is probably the best of all those. I, for years, have used all, and I've just studied it a little more, and I think complete is probably the, the better way to go. Um, being combined with present, it identifies that God is in all places at all times. He's all present. Or he's complete present. And you could say completely present, you know, and that would kind of give you an understanding that he is in all places at all times. Um, I think all is probably a little paradigmatically lacking in the definition of omni. The, the mental picture it gives off, I don't think is quite right. Our understanding of, of all for omni, I don't think is quite there. Complete definitely seems to have that complete picture or mental paradigm, if you will. So God is completely present. And that, again, is in all places, all times, all ways. It's complete. It's complete presence. This is possible because God exists outside of space and time. Okay? It doesn't need to be possible. He's God. But as a, a, a human viewpoint logical here, logical addition here, this is possible because he exists outside of space and time. Everything is within space and time except for him. The third color of the rainbow is yellow. Yellow has literally been symbolic of wisdom. Wisdom comes from knowledge. Colossians 2.3 identifies that in God are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thus, yellow represents God's omniscience or complete knowledge. All knowledge would work too. God knows all things, always has, always will. Apparent contradictory verses in scripture Alluding to God coming into knowledge is contextually experiential or anthropomorphic in nature. Now, two, two, two clarifications here. 
contextually experiential. I mean, in the passage that we find, like, uh, specifically when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, at the end of the sacrifice of the actual ram instead of Isaac, God says, now I know your faith. The Hebrew word there identifies that now I have come to see it. Not to learn about it, but to see it. So God already knew his faith, but he has now seen it in his experience. That's what we mean by contextually experiential. Is that in God's experience, there's the context dictates that it's not a new knowledge or a new learning of something, but that he's either come to see it or something of that sort. The other term, anthropomorphic in nature, an anthropomorphism is something that attributes human qualities to a non-human thing. Okay, a rock talking is anthropomorphic. Um, there's another term for it, starts with P, personification. personification. That usually is putting a personality into something. Um, an anthropomorphism is giving human characteristics to a non-human thing. So when we say that um, <clears throat> the concept that God feels, or God was sad, God, God's heart was saddened uh, or grieved, there there are actual legitimate expressions of what God is doing there and I don't want to say feeling there because it's not a feeling it's not an emotion um, so there are things that we attribute to God and scripture attributes to God that are giving him human characteristics and they're designed like parables to help us understand and help us relate in certain ways so <clears throat> that word anthropomorphism we've used before um, but that's a little bit better definition of it in its application there so yellow represents God's omniscience or complete knowledge the fourth color of the rainbow is green. Green has historically been used to symbolize eternalness in literature. Psalm 92 identifies before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God being eternal, having no beginning and no end, is represented by the green color of the rainbow. Nothing created him, for he has always been. The difference between eternal and everlasting, the beginning part. Everlasting has a beginning and no end. Eternal does not have a beginning and does not have an end. Interestingly enough, the New Testament never in the Koine Greek uses the word everlasting. It is always supposed to be translated eternal. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. In John um, I think it's 15, 24. No. John 15, 24 uses eternal also. But in John 3, 16 it says that for God so loved the world that uh, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's actually eternal life because we actually get the same life that Jesus himself has. And him being God, he's eternal. So we actually possess God's eternal life, which didn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. We don't have now new life that began and ended. It is God's life. It's not our own new life. Interesting thing. Um, in the Old Testament, we do have more of an everlasting concept at times, but not usually in re reference to, um, how do I say it? Not usually in reference to the relationships with God. In the sense that Old Testament saints didn't have everlasting life. They had eternal. Same concept as us. <clears throat> um, so Psalm 92 identifies before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, and that everlasting, everlasting should be from uh, eternal to eternal. It's actually, it's a tough phrase to translate because it's age of the ages of the ages, basically, which is the culmination of all the ages and past it. So it's before, during, and after but how do you have something that's after time? Because after is a timely measurement. In other words, God has no beginning, no end. Simply put. Blue is the fifth color of the rainbow and has been used often to symbolize purity and justice. Um, interestingly enough, our police force often wears blue. <clears throat> it's turned into more of a dark blue, which would be personally, I think, symbolic of the nature of the corruption of our police forces in many, many areas. Not saying ours specifically, but interesting enough, that's a side note, that is totally human and not part of the study. So, <clears throat> disclaimer. Yeah, just a disclaimer. This we understand biblically as righteousness, uh, that concept of purity and justice. Scripture declares in Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Greek word is daikaiosune. It's the word from which we get righteousness. And it identifies someone who literally is in complete conformity to the specifications of the blueprint. This being the case, God is always in conformity with his plan or his plans. He never alters from this conformity at all. You could say that God is always just. Just and righteous are hand in hand. There is a standard that is met 
To be just means to be in agreement with that standard. So righteousness and just, justness, not justice, but justness, uh, are basically the same thing. Conformity to the law, to the standard that's set. Indigo is the sixth color of the rainbow and is used literarily to identify the power of governors or kings. Revelation 19.6 identifies the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The word Almighty comes from the Greek word pantakrator, which identifies an individual who has all or complete power and strength. Now notice this is talking about more of a physical concept than a governorship, governorship concept. He's got all power, strength, and ability. <coughs> in fact, the power is, uh, relate, is identified as being in strength. It's power in strength, not power and strength. We term this omnipotence or complete power as a reference to God possessing all power to accomplish all things. God's omnipotence is represented, represented by the color indigo in the rainbow. <clears throat> which leads us to the seventh, which is violet. Violet, more modernly known as purple, represents royalty literarily. In other words, if you were wearing purple in some cultures, you were royal. Purple was the finest and most expensive cloth you could buy. It was designed for royalty. Robin? Revelation 19.6 for indigo, the sixth color. <clears throat> Alright, so back to violet. Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Don't ever let someone tell you that God doesn't swear. I'm not saying you should tell him that he does, but don't ever let them tell you he doesn't. Because Hebrews 6.13 says otherwise. <clears throat> but notice what's going on here. We've got a cultural thing here. We're not talking about cussing. We've got the concept that they're making a covenant. They're making an agreement. And because he has nothing to offer as collateral for his agreement, other because there's nothing above him or nothing better than him, he offers himself. He says, I swear by myself. I make this covenant by myself. My character will sustain it. This identifies God as supremely sovereign. Sovereign literally means to reign over. Scripture identifies that God is the supreme sovereign being who reigns over all things. Violet is representative of, God, of God's sovereignty. Some would identify the, the, the term supremely sovereign as a redundant term. It's not necessarily. There are some sovereignties that exist under other sovereignties. In other words, the, the father or the husband is head of the household. He's the sovereign of that household. He reigns over that household. God reigns over him. Who reigns over God? No one. He is the supreme sovereign being. So by supreme, we mean the uttermost. There's no one that reigns above God. Um, <clears throat> there are other governorships and, and, and reigns that under the proper direction of God exist. Violet is representative of God's, God's supreme sovereignty. The colors of the rainbow as the manifestation of the attributes of God are as follows. Number one, red represents love. Number two, orange represents omnipresence. Number three, yellow represents omniscience. Number four, green represents eternalness. Number five, blue represents righteousness. Number six, indigo represents omnipotence. Number seven, violet represents supreme sovereignty. So God placed the rainbow as a reminder to himself and all flesh of his covenant that day. In doing so, he gave a visible manifestation of his character comprised of seven different attributes from which we derive all characteristics of God. James 1.17 identified that God's character does not change in form. Perhaps if it did, the seven colors of the rainbow would also vary season in and season out. Such not being the case, God's manifestation of his character is evident in the sky in the form of the rainbow. It would be an interesting thing to see the rainbow change colors. Instead of, it, it would be just totally weird. I mean, something out of like Dr. Seuss or something like that. Um, but the rainbow is always the same. It would be kind of unnerving at this point to look up in the sky and see a rainbow that was varied in color, other than what it, it normally is, that Roy, Roy G. Biv concept. Um, because those are primary colors, I'm not sure exactly how to make yeah. that happen. But... God can do anything, so <laughs> yeah, you can't find anything else there, so 
but it would be an interesting thing. Um, and perhaps, I'm not saying this dogmatically so, or that this is what we're, we're teaching, but perhaps the reason it doesn't change is to remind us that God does not change himself. Um, but we know through James 1.17, and not necessarily just through the rainbow, that God's character does not change in form. Nor do we just see different sides at different times. That's that paralegate concept of orbiting and seeing um, a different side of the, the star or the moon or the sun at different times. All right, this study would be incomplete, so don't get comfortable just yet. We're not done. Without a couple of brief observations which provide additional support to the foundation and framework of this study. Um, these are two observations we'll make tonight. Number one, science has identified the rainbow forms when the angle of light rays bend through water molecules. This bend creates the visible spectrum of Roy G. Biv. We call it infraction. Angle of light comes in, it hits water molecules, and it bends. It changes direction. That's when we see the spectrum of color. Number two, the transgender, homosexual, bisexual community has adopted the rainbow as a sign of their culture and cause, yet it possesses only six of the seven colors of the rainbow. This is going to be interesting. Number one, science has identified the rainbow forms when the angle of light rays bend through water molecules. This bend creates the visible spectrum of Roy G. Biv. Uh, two points here. In talking with Nicodemus, Jesus identified, this is John chapter 3, Jesus identified that humanity needed two births, a water birth and a spiritual birth. The implications are clear. The water birth represents physical birth, the spiritual birth representing the second birth, the birth of the human spirit, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The, counter, or the second part of that is humanity witnessed during the life of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, God in human form. Jesus of Nazareth was born of water birth, and in that water birth, God himself was seen visibly on earth. That's pretty cool. The concept that God came down through water birth, we were able to see him. Water and light. God himself is light. I kind of mentioned that last week, so it really doesn't have that shock and awe factor that it usually has. It's still pretty cool. I still got goosebumps either way, so. <laughs> the more politically incorrect one, Number two, the transgender, homosexual, bisexual community has adopted the rainbow as a sign of their culture and cause. Point one, their rainbow only possesses six colors, not seven. Point two, the missing color is violet, which is sovereignty. And here's the interesting part. Romans 1, 21 and following identifies that all sin stems from a failure to recognize God in his rightful position of reigning over humanity. When an individual chooses to ignore God's sovereignty, the result is a list of sins, homosexuality included. When we choose to ignore God as being supreme sovereign leader under which we are to trust and obey, we sin. Which leads us to our James 1.17 and doctrine of uh, trials and testation. If we will just recognize that God is God and take what he gives us, we will never sin. It's that simple. From the point we're saved on. It was mentioned toward the beginning of this study that there are seven dependencies of promise fulfillment. God's character completely satisfies the list of, his, of dependencies and its subset of lists. This is The seven are satisfied in this way. Number one, his character is trustworthy. Number two, his resources are unlimited. Number three, his abilities are unencumbered. Number four, his volition is always used righteously. Number five, he is not mutable. Number six, he is not subject to anyone or anything. And number seven, he is infinite. Now, if you actually take this list of seven things and compare it to the attributes of God, they're not a direct correlation. But it's pretty close. God, his character is trustworthy. Because of self-sacrificial love, you can trust that he will always put your needs before his own desires. Because of him having all power and all knowledge and all ability, his resources are endless. They're unlimited. I mean, he can make more resources. Now, you, you can see... The attributes of God, and I would encourage you if you get a chance to compare your notes, look at look at the two lists side by side. They're all there. It's not a direct correlation. I tried that. It didn't work. But there are definite correlations to it. It's very close, but it's wrong. I know. Me too. Yeah, it really bothered me. <laughs> yeah, it really bothered me. Why can't you change this around? Because this is the list that was Holy Spirit driven. Oh. Is that half a heresy? <laughs> He's going like this. <laughs> in, in theory and in hope, I was completely in fellowship at that point. 
Alright. That aside, because of God's character and thus His grace, His promises can be fulfilled. There should be no surprise when God's promises are fulfilled because they are backed by His character and should be expected to be fulfilled. What surprises us sometimes is the way, the time, and the how. I guess that's the way. The, the way, the time, and the place, they're, they're fulfilled. Um, surprise at the fulfillment of, God, of one of God's promises is due to a failure to recognize God's complete character. Um, or, it just caught us off guard. We weren't expecting it at that time. Or we weren't thinking about it. Either way. We call it greatly dumb in youth group. The stupid things that we do that are just completely illogical when compared to God. Lastly, in studying scripture and understanding God's actions, it is imperative to keep in mind that his actions stem from his character, as do a man's actions from his own heart, the cardia. This being the case, God cannot act in a way that is contrary to his complete nature. Philosophical argument now comes out to, can God do whatever he wants? Yes. Well, he cannot lie. No, he cannot because he's righteous. But here's how we interpret this and understand this. Theological interpretations of scripture and God, which fail to harmonize all of God's attributes, will fail to ascertain harmony with truth. Harmony. <laughs> harmony. Will fail to ascertain harmony with truth. <clears throat> In other words, we can't just look at God being sovereign, God being eternal, or God being sovereign and all-powerful, or God being sovereign and right, and think that we can adequately understand his word. We have to understand who God is. All of it. Not completely, but we have to understand his attributes, and all of them in a complete set. Now, we're never going to understand God completely, but we should be able to gauge when, when something happens, or when we have some sort of potential answer to prayer or direction that we're seeking to find, we should be able to ascertain whether that came from God or not. And the way we do that is by examining it through his character. Does this work with God being loving? Does this work with God being sovereign, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent? Go through that list. If it's not, it's possibly not from him. Or, keep this in mind too, you may not be seeing that specific attribute just yet. So keep that in mind. Uh, but oftentimes, it, predominantly, it seems that we will choose to go, that we need to evaluate it, and then oftentimes we'll find out this isn't from God. This is from somewhere else. And as you as you grow in doing that and, and practice that more and discipline yourself in that, you'll start to see yourself, your sin nature, Satan and company suggestions, and then God. And you'll start to understand where all these things are coming from and what is going on. And that's when things really open up. Because when that happens, now you're able to actually just take a step back and zoom out and let God take over on a lot of stuff. Divergent theological beliefs, such as the heated and mostly philosophical debate of free will versus predestination, are impossible to resolve without a complete harmony of God's character in view. God is sovereign, but he is also love. God is omnipotent, but he is also eternal. God is omniscient, but he is also righteous. And in all of these things, God is also omnipresent. <laughs> we need to understand when we're debating philosophically, theologically, systematically, however we debate, however we study, we need to keep in mind all of God's attributes. In fact, this is who we're relating to, in theory. This is who we should be relating to and depending upon. God being love and these attributes. Now, don't focus on the attributes. Focus on God, who is these attributes. That's the difficult thing, is not letting these become things of God and keeping them God. Any questions?